Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton, and this morning I'm here with Hayden Hagerman. And we have for a long time wanted to discuss Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life because we were both just taken with the film, and it uh, is one of the most spiritual films. And I would take a step further and say that it's a specifically Christian film, almost a prayer, you might say, in its contents. I understand there are a lot of people that may not go to the movies to see what Terrence Malick is doing. It may be and has proven to be very divisive, as are most of Terrence Malick's films. But it's deeply spiritual, and it's coming from a voice and a person trained in philosophy. If you had to describe Malick's orientation, how how would you do so? His way of filming is impressionistic. It's like going to the museum and seeing random, broad brushstrokes over a painting with and each one is astounding. You watch his films and each shot just kind of hits you for a second or two. And then you, you're, you're to another mind-defying shot. It's an experience. It, it kind of takes you. Something about it is inherently existential that just grips you um, with each cinematic take. And maybe that's it, that it, it is an experience that if you're going to see a story. He's not real heavy on narrative, and purposely so, that he's trying to capture a larger narrative. And so if you know, if you just went through the film sequence, I think he sets the stage in the opening, and he always, at least that I've seen, he does the voiceovers. And the main character is often, or in the case of A Tree of Life, Mm-hmm. It's the mother of Jack. But anyway, the opening sequence is a quotation from the book of Job. You know, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And when, uh, where were you when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? By its nature, disorienting, right? Um, because it's questioning you, the viewer. And just a word about the film. You mentioned that it's kind of explicitly Christian and theological. <laughs> when you say that, and then you tell that to that kind of the ordinary Christian here in the States, and they go and purchase it and start to watch it, there's something deeply disorienting about about it because it's not like watching something from Christian media, which all of us know are the worst films ever made, right? Other than the new Star Wars, but you watch these movies with hackneyed plots who just like Malik don't really care about story but not in the same sense you know it's these kind of not even d-list actors <laughs> who kind of come together and the the story is always trite and the problems are always uh, simplistic and the answer is even more simplistic so you go from watching that and then you watch this i mean uh, <laughs> It's it's kind of hard to reconcile. I, I guess us Christians have just been so bad at making films <laughs> that encountering something like Malick's uh, and, and hearing that it's Christian, you I mean it's you don't even know 
what that word means. Yeah, maybe that's a poor way to begin because you immediately get the wrong idea. And in fact, I I know there are people that have watched it and they would be shocked to hear of that interpretation because actually I think you could watch the whole film and maybe come away with a very different notion of what the whole thing is about. I guess. Yeah, yeah m- maybe. I mean, someone who's embedded in the story of Christianity it, as you and I are, I mean, it's kind of hard to see outside of it. It, it seems with every point and every layer to be expressly Christian. In fact, David Hart calls it the most the most Christian film ever made. And you you have folks like Peter Lightheart who write an entire book on the the theological themes and ideas and problems in the tree of life. Yeah, yeah. Once you're kind of glued to that, it's hard to see outside of it. And I and I think your point is well taken though that when you say Christian, what you're getting in the in the film is no resolution or or no no definitive resolution. The film is all about grace, but at the same time as in the opening sequence, there is this mystery and the unfold, you know, the, yeah. the opening sequence is creation and nature and the picture of nature. And that's sort of, I think, thematic in the film. And, and you can disagree with me at any point here, mm-hmm. is that nature it gives us a fairly harsh picture of reality taken in and of itself. And maybe the father figure played by Brad Pitt. It's Mr. O'Brien. Mr. O'Brien. It seems a rite of passage for a, a major Hollywood actors to play in Terrence Malick's films. I mean, if if we just go down the list, you you got Sean Penn, Jessica Chastain, and then his other films. You have Christian Bale, Natalie Portman, Ben Affleck. Sean Penn was actually not completely pleased with the film, and you sort of get that that oh okay yeah actually right. <laughs> Maybe Sean Penn wouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you know, a little bit about that. But I think that, that in the film, the nature aspect, red and tooth and claw, portrayed, you know, in the, what is it, the sequence, you know, it's taking place in Texas and giving us a history mm-hmm. that is cosmic in its proportion and of course, that's the cosmic and the very particular, mm-hmm. the kind of idea in, in a, a Kantian mode of the sublime. That is, what is the sublime? Well, it's the, the particular set against the background of this cosmic thing. And so it's this, this little family in Texas. So we're getting a full cosmic history and a clear local setting. To put it in biblical terms, because it's a profoundly biblical film, what's interesting about the creation sequence is it, in a way, it doesn't just mirror God's response to Job, because prior to this long 20-minute creation sequence, what precipitates it is the mother, Mrs. O'Brien, says out into the ether, where were you? Which, of course, is the same words that God says back to Job, but now, you know, now it's put to reverse. The response is this 20-minute creation scene that is, of course, not just reminiscent of Job 38 and following, but Genesis 1. And then right after that, you have these two people, Mrs. O'Brien and Mr. O'Brien, in a garden, you know, rolling around, uh, playfully happy, 
an ecstatic love. And so in a way, it mirrors Genesis 2. And then from there, the story picks up. Oh, it's good. The mother then, if you had to say, maybe it's too early to say what each of the characters represent, but throughout the film, there's a kind of harshness, cruelty, that Jack, who yeah. is we're into Jack's head, and a lot of the film is his memories. We have his birth, and you know whether that's his imagined memory. But anyway, it's a lo it's locating Jack and telling us who mm -hmm. this guy is mm -hmm. uh, through his own memory. Yeah, you said that it's a prayer of sorts at the beginning, uh, and I think you're exactly right. Therefore, if it's a prayer, uh, it's not mainly about Jack's story. It's about God's story. I think that's that's what's sublime about the film. That's that's what's so intriguing about it is it's like Augustine's Confessions, and that Augustine's Confessions is falsely called uh, the first Western autobiography, um, but it's not an autobiography. If you read it closely, it's a prayer, and so it's not a story about Augustine. It's a story about God. It's in finding God that Augustine finds himself, mm. and it's in finding God in the film that Jack finds himself because you've uh, this, this continued motif throughout story is this disoriented fragmented life that Jack has. That's why it's kind of piecemeal uh, his reflections and it's, it's, it's going back forward and it's going, it's a flashback. And then you have him kind of wandering around in a desert, which is obviously symbolic of, um, the dry, the dry soul, or being alone or isolated uh, from oneself, and then it's it's him at the end, kind of coming to himself in a doorway. Yeah, because at the very beginning, right, uh, his yeah. his words are brother, mother. It was they who led me to your door, and constantly throughout the film, you you get these pictures of random doors and windows, kind of interspersed throughout the throughout the movie and then at the very end jack is is uh an adult and he's in the desert and he's been wandering in the desert for presumably the entire film and then you have this this woman whose face you don't see until the end leading him through this door and jack is you know uh, doubtful and all that good stuff but he hears his brother's voice say follow me uh, which is akin to you know, the first words of, of Jesus to his disciples, and then the last word that he says to Simon Peter, follow me. And Jack steps through the door, and there is this kind of renewed picture of of earth, and presumably, you know, the new heavens and the new, new earth, and Jack is reconciled with his family and stuff like that. But that mysterious woman, if you pay close attention to the film, whenever Jack is is kind of asking a question in his prayer, like, where were you? Uh, when did you first touch my heart? When did I f first realize that I loved you? Um, that sort of stuff. You'll get these shots of a woman's hands and arms touching him. For instance, at the very beginning, you see this woman kind of wrap up the second son, uh, who's ultimately the son who's lost. Next, you see that woman's uh, arms kind of waving the young Jack through a garden, giving him a little book, pointing the way to him through a door, helping him pray by t touching his chest. And then all of a sudden mm -hmm. this young Jack kind of 
offers up this uh, childish prayer of helping him not to sass his dad and all that good stuff. And then in a time of trial, you see this woman kind of appear again and anoints his head with water and gives him a chalice, which seems to be a, a representation of uh, baptism and, and the Eucharist. So, you know, giving him the sacraments. Then you have her again appearing at the, the end, leading him through a desert. And then once he goes through that door, once he finally makes that jump through that door, uh, you finally see the woman's face, which you don't see the entire film. And you see her raising the dead, this, this person out of a grave. You see her comforting a child who's been severely burned. You see Jack fall, fall down before her. And then you see her at the very end helping Mrs. O'Brien offer up her son. If we go back to that motif of prayer that the movie's a prayer, and if Jack is not the primary character in prayer, but God is, then who is this this person? And Malik kind of enigmatically uh, lists this woman as the guide in the credits, which is just wonderfully su uh, suggestive for a Christian, because you know that that's the way that the Holy Spirit is talked about throughout Scripture as a guide. And if you look through those actions that I just kind of talked about in the film, you know, being present with him in prayer, pointing the way, leading him through the desert, waving him on in the garden, present in the sacraments, comforting a, a burned child, and helping Mrs. O'Brien offer up her son. Mm. Mm. Those actions are all linked to the Holy Spirit's activity mm. in Scripture. To say that it's a prayer... I, I think that to fuse the notion, uh, well, what is prayer? Prayer in the in the film is a person's deepest thoughts. It's the deepest questions they have. It's their deepest struggles. And so prayer is not removed from biography. In fact, I think in most, you know, what we get in most stories is kind of fake, that we really don't get into people's heads. We really mm -hmm. don't know their thoughts. But of course, the point in prayer is, well, the, here is your deepest thoughts presented to God, mm -hmm. your deepest questions presented to God. And it's not as if there is not an answering voice, but the answering voice then is the scope of this whole, of this film, and the scope of the film is cosmic. That is, that there is an answering voice, but to hear that voice, there is the sense that you have to pass through that doorway, whatever that doorway is, or you have to go through the movement of this film to hear the voice of God. Right. Yeah, that's wonderfully said. You know, you mentioned kind of the way that nature is portrayed in the film as a kind of harsh, severe sort of thing. And I think that's that's the battle that you wrestle with as you're watching the film. Is it is that the way that you're called to view this nature? Or as or is it not nature, but as Norman Wearsba rightly points out, he's a he's a theologian who works with ecology and he, he says Christians have a name for its creation. And once we name it creation, then then all sorts of things follow all sorts of conclusions follow which is that uh, obviously it's been created 
and loved by God and is loved and sustained by God. And because it's loved and sustained by God, it, it reveals something to us about who God is and that there is something deeply majestic and beautiful about, about creation that is constantly pointing us ever on to the infinite beatitude and beauty of God. And that's constantly what Jack has to wrestle with in this film is how is it that he chooses to view what's around him, which is the struggle between his mother and his father. His mother, in many ways, is the embodiment of grace. She She's playful. Uh, she's loving. She's beautiful. She's comforting. She's forgiving. She reaches out to, in one scene, a man who's been arrested with a cup of cold water, which is, you know, in many ways, a, an echo of... Uh, Matthew 25, I believe it is, of, you know, caring for the, the imprisoned and the stranger, uh, reaching out with a cup, even a cup of cold water. And then you have, you have the father who is stern, serious, tough. He considers him a, himself a self-made man, and he's, he's deeply proud. But at the very end, he falls. And what he says is that he, he missed the glory around him. Uh-huh. He says, I, w- I wanted to be loved because I was great, but I was foolish. You know, look at the glory around us, all the trees and the birds. I dishonored it all, and I didn't notice the glory. And you compare that to the mother, the mother who, who tells him, wow. who tells yeah. Jack and the boys, love everyone, love every leaf, every ray of light, forgive. And that's a totally different way of seeing what's around you. And that's the difference between Christianity and everything else is that, you know, you know, what's around you is creation. Um, and it's not, it's not just a violent and beautiful nature, but it's the, it's the infinite spectacle of, of, of the glorious triune God. If you have the perspective of grace and isn't that the point of the film, right? The, the two things then are, that's the struggle. There's a kind of continual struggle with death. It's in the very opening scene that an envelope is delivered, telling them of the death of their son. It's sort of mysterious. And of course, people who read this script were just shocked to people that knew Terrence Malick because they thought it was such an intimate portrayal of his own life. Mm-hmm. And that is that his his younger brother yeah. killed himself. For folks who haven't seen it, right before right before the family, the O'Briens receives this letter, and it's the mother, of course, who receives it first and laments and cries. You get a sequence of of her as a young child, and her voice is speaking right after that opening from Jack of you know brother mother. It was they who led me to to your door, and so we we uh, start off with this this mother as a child and she starts talking about these two ways that she learned from the nuns when she was in school the way of nature and the way of grace she sets out here i'll just quote from her she has she says the nuns taught us that there are two ways through life the way of nature and the way of grace you have to choose which one you'll follow grace doesn't try to please itself it accepts being slighted forgotten disliked accepts insults and injuries Nature only wants to please itself, gets others to please it too, likes to lord it over them, to have its own way. It finds reasons to be unha- 
unhappy. And here's the key point. When all the world is shining around it. When love is smiling through all things. They taught us that no one who loves the way of, of grace comes comes ever to a bad end. And then you get her, her, her saying, I will be true to you. Presumably that's to God, whatever comes. And then she receives this, le this letter. So what, what's interesting about that sequence is that prior to any tragedy or suffering or illness or pain, there is this prevenient grace. There's this grace that goes before. And so that you have this picture of the young Mrs. O'Brien as a young child smiling and holding a lamb close to her chest, which is obviously, you know, deeply symbolic for Christians. And then you have the tragedy. Just in terms of how Christians even see things, it's not like nature comes first or or suffering or death or illness or whatever comes first. It's always grace, right? And so I think that's that itself is a deeply Christian mm. movement mm. to to recognize that grace always precedes. It it doesn't just come come after. And that may be Jack's struggle is to understand the inner working of nature and grace because uh, clearly he's one who's driven he's pictured in as an architect in a kind of cold, you know, he has his house which is clearly a architectural wonder but kind of cold and steel and glass and and th that there is it, it it is this kind of a harsh mm. cityscape that we he's always pictured in mm -hmm. and of course the the film i think is really it uh, a lot of it then is his recognition right. of what you're describing right. uh. the implication is that he walks through that door or am I misreading? No, I, I think I think that's right. It's just how does he get there? You know, he says it's it's through his his brother and his mother. Which of course as a Catholic, I'll just speak up. When I when I hear those words, I, I hear more than, you know, just a literal brother and a mother leading us back to ourselves, leading us to to the Father. You know, I hear Christ and I hear Christ's mother, Mary. And so there's a way of watching the film in which you can see Mrs. O'Brien as a Marian figure. I, and in fact, I think it's right to see her as that. And then you you read the second son as maybe not a Christ figure, but at least Christ-like. I know his initials, RL, some have suggested, you know, is, a, is maybe an acronym for the resurrection and the life. And obviously his death is unique in the story. And a, and a key point, you have him embodying innocence. You have him forgiving Jack. You have him imitating the mother rather than the father. Jack kind of talks about himself as being more like his dad, and he hates that about himself. Um, but this younger brother is is just like the mother. Mm. And then at the very end, you have Mrs. O'Brien offering up, by the help of the guide, she says, the last words are, I give him to you. I give him, I, I give you my son. And of course, that's that's a very interesting kind of interplay again, because just like it's God who asks the question, where were you? And then uh, you have the mother saying, where were you in a time of, of crisis and tragedy? At the very end, you have her saying, I give him to you. I give you my son after experiencing this great sorrow and suffering. But that's, of course, the words that the father says back to us, right? Mm -hmm. I give him to you. I give 
I give you my son. Those figures guide Jack, I think, through the film, not only to, to God, not only to the Father, but to himself. Because it's a knowing, it's a knowing God truly that he comes to know himself, which is why he can, he can at the very end of the film, look around even these cold, isolated buildings and, and see a tree and hear birds singing and smile. The grace wins. Yes. In Malick's depiction of mm -hmm. nature, there's always this mixture. It's not that nature is simply glorious. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the scenes, the dinosaur that uh, along the river there in Texas. A lot of the film, I guess, mm -hmm. was that Malick is, uh, his hometown is Waco. Is that right? He spent most of his life, in, or at least most of his adult and filming life in Texas. And so I think the film, part portions of the film are actually there, filmed in Waco. But the, mm. the dinosaur is, uh, there's one that's injured and another comes along and clearly could kill it. That is that there, there is this kind of violence that's there. But the, it, instead of killing it, I don't know if you call it, if a dinosaur has altruism or <laughs> what, what, what it is, but at least there's the hint. Yeah. And of course, that what it reminds us of is that there is something, there, there is a kind of harshness and maybe rec represented it. I don't know if Jack's father, Mr. O'Brien, is simply representative of that harshness. Maybe so. Right. How is that resolved? Because if you take nature as an entity in and of itself, apart from grace, and maybe already I'm making a category mistake in, in what mm -hmm. the way you've described it, you've already said, well, grace always precedes nature. But of course, a lot of us miss the grace that is there in nature. The case of Mr. O'Brien is a, a repentance, you know, at the end of the film. He's basically missed everything because in some way he's absorbed the cruelties, the harshness that is inherent in the life-death struggle that the natural world can present to us if we see it not as a pointer to who God is, but as a kind of entity unto itself. Isn't that the whole point of the film? That one can inhabit this world you know, you're there in Texas and that the cosmos itself is the context. And maybe there is no transcendence. Maybe this is it. And if this is it, this gives you a Mr. O'Brien-like character, one who's driven by ambition, one who's a self-made man. He's continually trying to patent his inventions. In some way, he wants to achieve success, establish himself. And of course, he fails to do that. But don't we all? I mean, isn't that the lesson of Mr. O'Brien? Whatever might have happened to him, you know, he loses his job, they have to move. Uh, he's not a success, but are any of us a success on the terms that nature lays out? And I think the answer is no. Yeah, right. What's so unique about Malik is he's theologically sophisticated. So it's not that he just portrays nature wholly negative. If he did that, he would be a Manichaean, not a Christian. Of course, nature is not negative, at least if we 
we come to look at, at uh, a theological anth- anthropology, nature is is good. It's created by God, but grace perfects it. And so even when we're looking at Mr. O'Brien and say, okay, he's the embodiment of, of nature, uh, this harshness, this severity, there's still a whole lot of good there. There's something to admire in him. He is ultimately a loving father. And so I think that's the subtlety that Malik shows us is he is a loving father and that he loves himself and his children are an extension of himself. What's unique about that is even the love of self is preceded and founded upon a primary love for God and that it participates in the goodness and the love of God. And so even this, if we would say the second cause of of Mr. O'Brien loving himself even that second cause is still based on the primary causality of, of God's infinite goodness and love. Like I said, there is something subtle in, in Malick's filmmaking, even, even as he's doing his cosmic creation scene. Yeah, it looks harsh, but man, is it beautiful. This raptor who stomps on this other dinosaur is fierce and terrifying and terrible, but is beautiful. And there is an element of, not an element, but goodness imbued in all of that. It's just, you need a a conversion of the mind to be able to see it. You need exactly what Mrs. O'Brien says, to love every creature. You need love to be your way that brings you out of yourself, that brings you purely out of nature, and allows grace to fulfill you and to bring you to perfection uh, for you to be able to kind of make sense of what of it all so it's not just a cold bleak isolated universe that you're talking about in waco texas which by definition maybe is a wasteland yeah yeah and of course what you're describing is true that even even in the bad moments of the film you know when young jack is transgressive and he breaks into a house and he's doing sort of bad things as a little boy i suppose every little boy has done even in the portrayal of it there's still a kind of beauty in small town texas which some might have a hard time finding beauty being a texan or or having lived in texas anyway i i kind of appreciated Mm. the the background because if you're looking for god Mm. in the harshness of what is the nature the natural world of texas he may sometimes seem to be absent but in fact, if you look closely, and I think that's sort of the, the message here, is that even in the, the mo- moments of harshness, transgression, pain, it's not as if they are ugly, or, but uh, that there is a kind of beauty in the whole thing. I mean, just that's sort of the contrast in, in Malik, that the cinematography is so beautiful that the the vision that he's capturing there is what whatever the scene is so well done that we're seeing two things at once and sometimes you know uh, apart from the voice of grace or the the voice of god perhaps it's not as if there isn't a message but it's a bit of a mixed message yeah i imagine trying to describe to someone what the movie The Tree of Life is about. I mean, just like, like, what would you say? It's about everything. Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, it's just like, what's the Bible about? And that's what separates this movie from the simplistic, reductionistic, talentless, oh, maybe that's a little too far, but um, Christian media that 
that's normally present is it tries to convey a single truth that is as banal as all get out compared to something like this where it's in order to to even understand it you got to be a part of it that it's a story not a, a single a single truth that you're you're supposed to take out of this thing it's not a a, a book of proverbs so to speak yeah it's uh, it is the whole sweep of creation and cosmic redemption but it is that whole sweep then that there's the the focus on this little family who in the large scheme of things who are the o'briens did they figure uh did they have an important position in mm-hmm. in their little town no they're just a, a family a lower middle class family with two young boys they're a typical family and so the smallness of the o'briens against the background of this cosmic picture, though it doesn't diminish who they are, in some way it lifts up and it says, well, it is a depiction of the cosmic scope and importance, perhaps, that every human life has, that we're all participants in a story that doesn't diminish us by its scope, but in some way it imbues us in our own life with meaning and beauty that we're not going to find apart from that total suite of things. Yeah, I don't know how to say it better, which is also the beauty of the incarnation, <laughs> is that when God became man, in the words of Coral Bart, he became this man, and that man happened to be a poor man, <laughs> brought up by a poor family in a no-name town with a gang of misfits, And yet it's that story that's universal. It's that story uh, which saves. And so there's something that connects us even here watching this film, The Tree of Life, to such an ordinary family as the O'Briens is again kind of at the heart of the film is that the glory of God is shining through it, especially in the ordinary things and in the every leaf and the every little squirrel that runs across the yard and the little boys who are running around town the glory of god is all around which is all the more fascinating for kind of the main problem of the movie which is namely a woman loses her son an innocent woman loses her son and so is akin to the story of job that someone innocent suffers and so the question of course is why it's the it's the problem of evil it just makes that all the more germane to all of us and that the o'brien's being an ordinary family we can relate to the the quite ordinary acts of, of suffering that we all experience, that we all raise questions of their meaning and their purpose and the plan and all things. And it's curious to consider what the answer to that question might be in a film like The Tree of Life. Yeah, that it takes the seriousness that everybody's going to face the evil inherent in death. And it's more poignant in the death of a child, of your child, uh, that it's almost an unbearable thing that you see this. And of course, the the story, Malik's own personal story of his brother, who had gone to Europe to study guitar, he gets so frustrated with practicing and trying to learn guitar that he breaks his own hand. And their father goes over and tries to rescue him, but too late before he kills himself. Maybe knowing that story, or maybe it doesn't matter that we, we all are uh, going to experience death in some form or another. Or to put it in another way, maybe an old person dying is very different from the death of an innocent 
young person. Obviously a Christian sort of notion, or just the idea of life's futility. There is just an inherent futility in things. That evil can be definitive and destructive for all of us if we're not able to rise above that or see something, see it in a, in a different setting. You know, there is resolution, but if you had to articulate the resolution, that's sort of the genius of Malik. He's not, in other words, it's not a simple portrayal that what we usually get in Christian stories is a simplistic notion of the problem that often doesn't rise to the occasion of a true portrayal of evil and then gives us a simplistic answer. I don't know that there's an answer you can articulate, but it's almost like in the vision of the film, there is a, a feeling of resolution in the lives of everyone involved. Uh, but maybe you can do better than I can in, in, in describing that resolution. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.